Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. On this podcast, the conversations unfold a little slowly. We take our time to explore the nuances of an idea. As they say, it is the journey, not just the destination, that matters. We continue our chats around health and diet. Guest speakers at the Weight and Wellness Series at the University of Washington are exploring connections between our modern diet and our health, our body image, and our planet's ability to feed our growing ranks. Dr. Adam Drunowski studies the links between obesity and poverty. Two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. That puts them at greater risk of diabetes and heart disease. Dr. Junowski is a leader in the study of obesity and social disparities in diet and health. He's an adjunct professor of medicine at the UW and director of the Center for Public Health Nutrition at the School of Public Health. He is also the director of the University of Washington Center for Obesity Research. His research reveals that while food choices are based on taste and cost and convenience, there's a growing body of evidence that obesity in America is largely an economic issue. We sat down in his office on the University of Washington campus, a big room, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves full of books and research papers of his discipline. He has a big desk and enough comfortable chairs that he can come from behind it to sit for a relaxed interview. How good is the science linking food and health and incomes? The science goes back to 1930s. I began my presentation uh, by talking about the links between socioeconomic status, that is how much money people have, the kind of diet they eat, and the health outcomes. So all of those three things are linked. Having more money, having more education, does improve the quality of the diet, and does actually result in better health. Where we come in now is we bring in new methods and new metrics to measure all those things. I think the central concept has been there for a while, but the metrics are new. And sometimes the profiles that we see in terms of uh, socioeconomic status, education, income are not readily apparent. We've developed new ways to show them in very sharp relief. I was reading something you wrote about uh, how you can see the effects of different diets just by going down the shore to the, to the shore of Lake Washington and then coming back up and over the top. That's exactly what we do. So in fact, I have a class on neighborhood nutrition where we look at those disparities in health and diets at the neighborhood level. Just consider this. A lot of people have seen the very famous maps of the United States at the level of states. And the Centers for Disease Control has a website where you can click on and you see the map of the United States changing and the states changing color and things becoming darker as obesity is spreading across the United States over the past 25 to 30 years. We don't use those. We use very detailed maps at a much finer level of geographic resolution. We use maps for Seattle King County, but even below that, we look at zip codes and census tracts and most recently, census blocks. So these are very, very granular divisions of the Seattle space, and we can look at differences in obesity prevalence between, say, Mercer Island, Laurelhurst, and going down south towards the I-5 corridor. It really is a very fine scale of resolution. Well, let's just start there. What are the food choices on Mercer Island that lead, that allow people to be less obese? 
Okay, well, Mercer Island is a good example because um, there are no large supermarkets. There is no Costco, there is no Walmart, there is no Whole Foods on Mercer Island. But people there have got what I call economic access. So largely what we're showing is that distance does not matter. Being able to afford the foods once you step through the door of a supermarket is the main issue. So it's not the distance, it's the cost. And other people are also coming to similar conclusion. So for example, the issue of food deserts, we'll talk about that later on, is an economic issue. It is not an issue of distance. The folks in Mercer Island, what's in their wallet allows them to make choices. Are they making healthier choices? Uh, they're making healthier choices, again, independent of distance, because their supermarkets are in fact further away. But what allows them to make the choices is a combination of income and education, and knowledge, and attitude, and all kinds of other things that go together with socioeconomic status. And those things are sometimes looked at in scientific studies, but very often they are not. It's very difficult to control for socioeconomic status. Is that why they're not looked at? It's very difficult to look at them, because uh, first of all, those are personal questions. People in survey studies do not give you the answer. They don't give you the correct answer, or sometimes no answer at all. And also, in a kind of mathematical model, can you really say that life at 100,000 a year is exactly 5.0 times better than life on 20,000 a year? Or is it just a whole different world? There's really no comparing. You really cannot say one is five times different than, than the other because there's really no metric. It's a different life. And so as a result, sometimes we think that we've controlled for this when we start looking at different people, but we're fooling ourselves. In fact, a lot of social scientists now say that it is very difficult to separate the person from the food they eat. That's a pretty okay. dense statement. <laughs> All right, so there are two schools of thought. On one hand, we have nutritional epidemiology. Nutritional epidemiology, and I should say I'm a professor of epidemiology, so I partly share that point of view, has taken great care to identify a single nutrient, a single food, a single dietary ingredient, a single type of store, and they say we can reliably link those factors to obesity or health. Think about sodas and obesity, think about fast foods, think about antioxidants. In every case, a single ingredient was linked to health. The social scientists say, whoa, wait a minute, if you eat one food, Maybe that is an indicator of eating another food as well. Maybe it merely is a proxy for what else is going on with your life. Maybe it really isn't one single food. Maybe it is a food pattern. Maybe it is you and a food pattern. And how can the food pattern be separated from the number of children you have, whether you're single or married, what age you are, and so on? How can we really say that this one little food ingredient was responsible for your ill health. So the social science approach. All right, so we have talked in the past, we've talked about the density of food that has, where there's not much to that food, but it's very dense. We've talked about salt, yep. sugars. Are you moving away from that, those foods, as a way to understand what's happening in the American diet? We're expanding our horizons. So the nutrient density of foods is still going to be primary issue. You want to have nutrient-dense foods, absolutely more nutrients than calories. 
But then we also look at where those foods come from, how much you paid for them, what supermarkets you got them at, what did you do with them in your daily eating habits. So the issue of the social sciences is coming back in. And so now we look not just at the food in isolation, but at food in the context of food patterns and food systems. Dr. Janowski, you're doing these, these studies because you want to apply them in the real world to do something about the obesity epidemic. Take me to a, a neighborhood that you also studied in the south end of Seattle, where there was the opposite from Mercer Island. What's happening there? So we find that empty calories with poor nutrient content are very often cheaper. And they are selected, preferred, consumed by people with less money, lower income, because they are cheaper, we think. But then we have found something very interesting. When people have the right attitudes, when they value nutrition, when they want their food to be healthy, they'll spend a bit more, they'll go to higher-end supermarkets, and they will have higher-quality diets. So even in living in a poor zip code, not having enough money is not necessarily a barrier to good nutrition and healthy diets, if you have the right attitude. And so we're saying, where did that come from? First of all, what were those attitudes? How can we promote those attitudes? Will being able to cook, cooking skills, will that help? And so we've called this phenomenon nutrition resilience. There are clearly some people within the population who, for whatever reason, managed to put together a perfectly good diet for low cost. What are their food choices? What do they do? How do they behave? Where do they shop? And so on. So, for example, we, find, we found in analysis of national databases that in one case, Mexican-Americans had a diet that conformed to the DASH plan. DASH is the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. It's a diet heavy in vegetables and fruit and low in sodium, high in potassium. And we found that Mexican-Americans managed to get this kind of a diet cheap. We think it's more fruit, more vegetables, less meat, less salt. How they did it, we don't know exactly. So there are ways of eating better for less. And we're trying to figure out who eats better for less and how can those ways of eating spread to the rest of the population. By the way, on that note, is that for Mexican-Americans who are third generation as well as first generation? That's a very good point, and we don't know. We're using national data for that, and we'd like to follow it up. Um, in fact, I would like to do a comparative study with Mexicans in Mexico using some of the Mexican national databases. So we kind of go back and forth between using nutrition epidemiology techniques and approaches and looking at data from the United States, from Mexico and other places. But then we've expanded that to include a social psychology component with the attitudes and a spatial epidemiology component by looking at where people live. So it gives us better information about how people behave in time and space with respect to their food system. So I was in uh, the South this last uh, spring, and we know that, there's a, that part of the obesity epidemic is sweeping over the African-American community. In the South, without any science, I felt I saw more body types among the population. Is it possible that in the South, people are still more connected to a healthier diet, even given their socioeconomic status? That's a good point. The only data I have for the South are based on federal government data sets, and those are usually by state, but occasionally by county. And what we find in some of the southern states in the southeast 
is that there are counties where obesity rates exceeds 35%. I think it's inching towards 40%. By comparison, King County, on the average, is only 20%, which means in King County, only one in five people is obese. In other counties in the American South, it can be four out of 10, two out of five. So it's a huge discrepancy. But when you look within King County by neighborhoods, as I was saying, then you start realizing that in some cases, it's going to be one in 20 people in some zip codes or census tracts, and elsewhere, it is going to be three out of 10. So there's a huge discrepancy locally, even within Seattle King County. So what are the links between, we use the phrase race, but really we're talking about culture and obesity. We're talking about socioeconomic status, education, income, location that we track by looking at property values. And then yes, there's a component of race ethnicity. What we find is that the socioeconomic stuff is actually more, more telling and more powerful. So as I say, within Seattle King County, we see huge, huge differences depending on where people live. So we show that there is what we call a social gradient, which is very strong. It is very strong for diet quality. You know, richer people eat better. It is very strong for health. Wealthier people are healthier. In some cases, this holds for obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Not so much for cancer. The socioeconomic gradient for cancer is not that strong. It actually, in some cases, it is slightly inverse more biological disease, and not quite so linked to socioeconomic status and resources. And so the question we have is, what is the mechanism? What can we do? Because socioeconomic status is what people call a non-modifiable factor. In fact, in public health, there's sometimes a resistance or reluctance to study factors which cannot be modified. People like to look at triggers, pressure points, things that can be changed. So one mechanism could be stress, employment, unemployment, assistance, commuting, neighborhood stress, major sources of stress which can influence eating patterns and cardiovascular disease. So we're looking at stress. And I know that uh, Shariki Kumanyika talks, also talks about the stress of racism. Exactly. So that could be absolutely a component. This is an ongoing chronic stress in the response to stress, which may trigger eating patterns which are unhealthy. It may trigger reliance of unhealthy foods. It may prevent people from exercising or walking. So stress is a component, and we would like to look at stress using such measures as cortisol. Uh, currently, people look at telomeres. Uh, chromosome shortening is a function of age and stress. And so those are metabolic, biological explanations. The economic explanation is the one I keep coming back to, and that is the empty calories are simply cheaper, and sometimes they taste better. So, which kind of goes back to relieving stress. So you have stress, you have economics, and then you have this interesting component of resilience and attitude, which means that some people succumb and other people, for whatever reason, do not. Even in the lower income zip codes, not, every is obese, not everyone is obese. You know, there are 60% of the people who are not. So they are doing something right. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have finally the genetic predisposition you know, genetic resistance or the genetic predisposition to obesity, which also play a role. So the socioeconomic component is a kind of overall umbrella, but there are going to be mechanisms within that, which can be stress, economics, attitudes, genetics, any of those things can play a role. Now that you've reached this level of understanding and, and uh, philosophy, 
about what's happening. What kind of pushback do you get from policymakers or even colleagues because you are, I, I know you must be considered to be stepping over the lines. Actually, interestingly enough, we don't get any pushback on the personal attitudinal stuff. I think it's because people believe in the personal responsibility or the individual responsibility. Where we do get pushback is in suggesting that healthier foods cost more. And a lot of people are saying, no, 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 they don't cost more, you're wrong. It is really going back to individual responsibility and choosing well. And it doesn't matter if they cost more if they do, because people still should be making the right choices. And it is not so easy to make those choices if you have limited resources. So I think most of the pushback has been on the economic component, not on the stress component, not on the attitude component, obviously not on the genetic component. But the moment you start talking about food costs and food prices, it does engage all kinds of people with differing attitudes about food stamps and um, social support and all kinds of other things. They, they come to the fore. The structural issues. I mean, you had Michael Pollan starting out this, this lecture series talking about our national eating disorder, his argument being, let's just look at the subsidies and who gets subsidized. And if we can make some shifts in subsidies, maybe we can filter down to, to food choices, food costs. Do you agree with that? The USDA, the official position of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, is that the commodity prices or the, um, the cost of the actual foods is no more than about 15% of the food dollar. The other 85% is marketing, transportation, processing, and so on. So the USDA position is that the subsidies for five commodity crops really do not make any difference. The commodity crops would include wheat and corn and, um, I believe, rice and sugar and soy. If that's true, then wouldn't the healthier foods, I guess would be whole foods, vegetables, fruits, wouldn't they be able to compete then on price? It's very difficult to compete on price with something like sugar, which is grown cheaply in Brazil. And again, remember, every fruit, with few exceptions, is still picked by hand. So then you kind of go into the issue of labor and immigration and labor costs and so on. So it's not a, it's not, it's not a simple answer. All I can say is, for example, that some European countries have the same obesity problem. They have a similar structure of food prices, and the structure of agricultural subsidies in the European Union is very different. On the other hand, I will say this, that the policy, the agricultural policy, did not arise by accident. So here Michael Pollan is right. Um, in my presentation last week, I was referring to the work of John Boyd Orr, who later became the um, Director General of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Uh, this goes back to his work in 1936, which dealt with the British being underfed, malnourished, and ill-prepared to fight a war. So as a result, the British food industry went all out towards the provision of cheap calories and cheap nutrients by which John Boyd Orr meant milk. So the production of meat and milk and dairy in the United Kingdom in the 1930s and later on was actually driven by policy. It did not just happen. And I suspect to a very large extent the production of milk and meat and dairy and corn in the U.S. is a deliberate result of a policy. And I think that policy has always been towards um, production of low-cost calories, it is only recently that we've shifted our attention to nutrients and nutrient-rich foods, and especially fresh produce such as vegetables and fruit. 
And yes, they're called specialty crops, they're not commodity crops. They do not benefit from the same level of subsidy and they're more expensive on a per calorie level. But I would again insist that they are not expensive on a nutrient, per nutrient basis, because they are the cheapest sources. For example, fruit would be the cheapest possible source of vitamin C in a competition, just like milk and dairy products are the cheapest sources of vitamin um, D and also calcium, no competition. They are fortified with vitamin D and they carry calcium. So given that, what do you do with that information? Not just policy level, because as, as we were talking about, you have students who are here who want to uh, use the knowledge here to go out in communities yeah. and to help communities. We know that there's a connection between food health and, and income. Uh, we have these policies in place. Mm-hmm. What are useful tools at the, at the local level and at the policy level? But start with the local level. The class on neighborhood nutrition actually has three components that we use as student assignments. The first one is raising awareness about what students themselves are eating. So we actually give them all the food frequency questionnaire from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Same as has been used in countless research studies, they do it. The second assignment is, here is your diet, how much do you pay for it, go into a market basket in a local store, and then could you do the same thing for $6 per day, which is the food stamp allotment? And if not, why not? And the third one is almost like reverse food miles. Now that you know what you eat and how much it costs, where do you go to get the best quality for the price and how far do you have to go and how do you get there? The kind of combination of what you eat, how much you pay, and where you go. And so this is just raising consciousness. When it comes to doing interventions with communities, it's almost the same steps. People need to be aware of what they eat. Sometimes they think that the empty calories they consume are perfectly fine. They are not fine. And even if things are in some cases more expensive, what are the culturally appropriate good-tasting foods which give you good nutrition for less money? And then where do you shop? And this brings in the issue of distance to supermarkets, food deserts, and so on. Doesn't that also bring in the issue of how do people get that information? So there has to be trainers, there have to be... Well, and this is where communication, education, consciousness raising, advertising, all those things come in. And here, you know, we've been working with Public Health Seattle County, we've been working with food banks, uh, we have been working with local health professionals, we have a dietetics program where we train dietitians, um, and all those things play into connections to the community and working at community level. Give me an example of what you're doing with food banks, because food banks get all sorts of foods, not all of them good. Yes, and in fact, um, food banks in Pittsburgh adopted my system of nutrient profiling because they've been measuring their success by pounds of food given out. And now they are looking at nutrient quality of the food given out. They published that in the Journal of the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And here we have been working with um, the director of the University District Food Bank, and one of the students prepared an infographic about the type of nutritious, shelf-stable foods which could be donated to the food bank and suitable for children. So we're trying to identify, again, the appropriate nutrient-dense foods for the food bank. For example, looking at things like you know, canned vegetables. We were looking um, beyond obvious things like can- canned fish and peanut butter, which are part of the WIC program. We were looking at other foods, in some cases fortified cereals. We were looking at 
in some cases fresh produce, but some food banks do not often get fresh produce. Sometimes they do, sometimes they do not. So we're trying to identify from the kind of foods they get what might be suitable. Any surprises in that? I mean, did you come away thinking, oh, look, uh, canned asparagus is much better than we thought it was or something like, or, or worse? Well, interestingly enough, a lot of the nutrient to calories cost algorithms take you all in the direction of rice and beans and some leafy greens and canned vegetables and frozen vegetables. It's that direction. So this is kind of almost like a Mexican diet Mm -hmm. uh, with nutrient-rich. The carbohydrates come from uh, rice and beans. Uh, Beans give you fiber. Um, Some of the vegetables give you the vitamins. Tortillas give you calcium and um, starch. So it's kind of in that direction. It was kind of interesting. And, and those are all, again, shelf-stable foods that don't spoil, don't go bad, and so on. So um, possibilities there. So this is perhaps why uh, we have found in national studies that Mexican-Americans had this nutrient-dense diet at low cost. So ethnic food patterns may actually be of interest here. You would not be able to get this from processed meat or um, white bread or um, you know, any of the other things that sometimes we eat because it's cheap. How many years have you been studying nutrition? Well, nutrition for a long time. Um, the cost issue is fairly recent. You know, a long time ago when I was dealing with nutrition, I actually started looking at taste. So my early studies were on the taste of sugar, and we discovered that fat was a major component, and we did some of the very first studies on fat. So then, given that people make their food choices based on taste, cost, and convenience, I spent time studying taste. Now we're down to cost, and we're kind of moving into the food system and convenience. You know, which of those stages seems to be taking 10 years. (laughs) So it's not easy. I mean, what was the attraction? Was it just the scientific puzzle, or was something personal happening? No, there was nothing personal. I was was, um, doing research in physiological psychology, so looking at taste of food was the initial, you know, thing of interest. And then the interest became, how do you then combine um, the taste of sugar with the taste of fat? Because we know from experience, the taste of sugar and the taste of fat together are just kind of magic, and uh, that's where things happen. And after that, I thought, well, taste of sugar and fat is not only um, magic, but both sugar and fat are also incredibly cheap. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, we developed the food industry to give us the foods that we like. So it's not a coincidence. that These are the foods that we respond to biologically. We have to have them. We, need have, we must have them. Sugar and fat together are great. And the food industry, surprise, gives us those exact foods at a very, very low cost. How do we get the food industry to still provide the fats and the sugars because that's what we're going to be reaching for? in a way that uh, will not kill us. I think the big food industry, starting back at the beginning of the 20th century, was providing us essentially with shelf-stable foods, which initially were grains with cereals, fats, cooking fats, obviously that's how Unilever began, and then sugars, which is how soft drink companies began. So food industry, to some extent, is geared towards providing us with grains, sugar, and fat, But what we're now saying is that those grains, sugar, and fat, the empty calories, must be supplemented with nutrients. And I think to some extent the food industry is listening. There are examples of fortification, not so much used in the U.S., but certainly in other parts of the world, where low-cost foods are fortified with the necessary vitamins and minerals. 
Can they also use less fats and sugars for each individual serving as they calculate it, or is that going to be economically a problem for them? It can be done in some cases. For example, I probably would say that pizza, which is a major source of sodium for American teenagers, could have a lot less salt. But then if you look at something like Parmesan cheese, salt is there for preservation purposes. And if you take salt out of cheese, then you've got listeria. So in some cases, sodium is there for safety, and occasionally it's there for taste. So if it's there for taste, you can take it out. If it's there for safety, you cannot take it out. So you can take some sodium out of pizza. You cannot take sodium out of, say, Parmesan cheese or some of the processed meats or even bread. You know, bread, interestingly enough, is not a major source of sodium on itself by itself, but it's a major source of sodium in the population. It has low levels of sodium. It's consumed so often. Actually, bread is the major culprit for the American public. It's bread followed by meat. I asked you about the personal because I'm curious, as your work has evolved, and as you told me, you have students who feel very passionate about this. That's why they come here. Where's your passion? Are you passionate about it in the same way they are, or are you more scientific about it? I'm actually becoming very passionate about applying some of those methods to the international arena and to look at food patterns and consumption in developing countries, as we now call them low- and middle-income countries, to see how the nutrition transition and the changing eating habits impact on health. So we have been looking at other databases. We've been looking at data from other countries to see what are the patterns for sodium consumption, who is consuming potassium in Mexico, what about Brazil, to see whether or not other countries will make the same mistakes that we have made, or can there still something be done early on. Right now, there are many mega cities in the world with population of 20 million, where people are completely separated from the means of production. So United Nations say we'll be growing vegetables on the roof. I don't know if you're going to be growing vegetables on the roof of Bangkok when it has 20 million people. So then this population has to be fed. What will they be eating? What will they be drinking? They will not be eating necessarily fresh vegetables because where do those come from for 20 million low-income people? I don't know. So it's possible that something will need to be fortified with the vitamins and minerals that they need. What will that thing be? We need to look at nutrient density. We need to look at cost. We need to look at cultural acceptance. Uh, we need to look at viability. What are we going to be feeding the world with? That is the issue. There is a um, big uh, fair in Milan dealing with this issue this summer, feeding the world. How are we going to be feeding 7 to 9 billion people in the future, given that beef consumption for this amount of people is not possible, fresh vegetables and fruit, perhaps not, fish, don't even think about it, what will it be? So we need to start looking at the international arena and then start looking at both carbon footprint and water use. And I was just sharing a, a symposium on water scarcity, and people are beginning to look at agriculture use of water. What's coming out is, of course, that we only consume two to three liters of water per day, but if food consumes two to 3,000 liters per person per day, the food that we eat. So, you know, so each person really accounts for 5,000 liters of water per person per day. Where is that going to come from? The water resources may be finite. How will diets evolve because of that? There are no answers as yet, 
this is very, very interesting because we need to think about the future. Do you come away thinking it's interesting or do you come away thinking it's frightening? It's kind of frightening. And there are a number of kind of inherent paradoxes that actually make it interesting. For example, based on some European data, they show that from the environmental standpoint alone, just environmental standpoint, I'm not talking about health, the one plant food that is associated with lower carbon footprint, lower water use, and lower land use is actually sugar. So that's a bit of a kick in the head, because of course, that is exactly what we don't want. And yet, from the standpoint of sustainability, it's sugar. So then I usually invoke the definition of sustainable diets from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations by saying, ah, definition of sustainability does include health. So you take diet quality and health and environmental impact, and then we decide what is sustainable. It has to be healthy, and it has to have low water impact and land use and greenhouse gas emissions, but it has to be healthy as well. If not, that path will take you directly to sugar. And in fact, homegrown vegetables, the water and carbon footprint is not as low as you might think because of the economy of scale. So to some extent, you know, this is where I appreciate where the Dietary Guidelines Committee went after sustainability very properly, but they seem to think that growing our own tomatoes will solve the problem and it won't. If you want to go down the path of lowest greenhouse gas emission, and you use that to say attack milk, that path will take you to sugar. This is not where you want to go. The logical path seems to be taking us towards mega industrial production of food and fortifying those foods with the knowledge we have. Uh, now, the mega industrial production this is one approach. Um, the FAO has actually been taking an opposite approach, because on one hand, you can take the mega industry fortified with just about everything. And that is the approach taken by a number of people, including the Gates Foundation. And on the other hand, probably will be a conflict at some point, is the FAO, which is promoting local agriculture, local farms, shared value, biodiversity, and so on. Now, can the local farming feed the world? I don't know. Can Do you mean that, though? Do you mean that you don't know? We don't have the data yet? Well, we don't know. Uh, we, FAO is trying to promote local farming and local industry and local agriculture and promote biodiversity and so on. And they've had some successes. But what's coming from the other side is the mega industry with their products. So at some point, it'll be good to sit down and discuss those issues, which are becoming very interesting global issues on a global arena. Somebody listening to this who maybe is, has lower income, wants to eat better, what are the few things you're telling them? I think the first thing is to realize what it is that you're eating and keep track mentally of what you have and think about the times you reach out for what I call empty calories, the between-meal snacks, the packaged foods, and then think in terms of the more nutritious foods that you like. I think the idea is to eat every day a little bit better, not to make a gigantic change from, you know, cookies to broccoli in one fell swoop, but really think about what can you do today to just make it a little bit better for tomorrow. And then if there are skills that you need, and those skills may involve being less stressed, those skills may involve being able to cook something from scratch, those skills may involve going to the supermarket and looking at the labels to see what's what, then those skills need to be acquired. They will not be acquired overnight. So I'm very much in favor of small changes for the better, which may 
be unimportant from day to day, but at the end of some time, they really do make a difference. So every day, eat a little bit better. But it's tough because you can do better if you have money or education or time. If you have two out of three, it's okay. If you're zero for three, it's a problem. And then it becomes a problem that needs to be solved systemically because we need to do something about people whose choices are limited. Dr. Adam Dronowski is a leading researcher in the study of obesity and social disparities in diet and health. Find out more by searching University of Washington Weight and Wellness Series. Find more interviews by searching your podcast app for At Length with Steve Scher. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, as well as thehouseofpodcasts.com. Other speakers in the series include Michael Pollan, who spoke in early April, Surgeon General Regina Benjamin, speaking April 30th, and actress and body image activist Kathy Najimi, May 19th. Both will be guests on this podcast as well. Thank you for listening. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Mm-hmm.